is that in chapter 9, uh, at the end, Paul talks about how Christian freedom must not be void of self-discipline. And he talks about these athletes, about beating the air, and how he doesn't want to be disqualified. And because in chapter 10, what we're going to see is that Paul transitions into a cautionary tale. So for us to know what it looks like to maybe take our freedom too far. And so uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, I'm going to read now, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin the sermon and hopefully uh, begin to understand what Paul is talking about here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll be reading from the ESV translation. For I do not want you to be aware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let me pray. Father, we come before you on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning uh, in the middle of February. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the space. Thank you for those who are here today and, and even those that um, are not able to make it on this Sunday. Father, I, I do ask that as we spend some time in your word, I pray as you say in your word that your word would not return void, that it will accomplish its purposes for your sake and for your glory that it would indeed transform our hearts and that we would not merely just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word as we go forth and um, as students, as co-workers, as parents, as husbands or wives or friends or roommates, that it would truly transform the way that we live um, and how we act in this world for the sake of your glory uh, so that they would know us by our love. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So 90 years ago, one of the greatest constructions was ever created. Now, no expense was spared for this construction. This construction had luxurious dining rooms, ornate ceilings, and an elegant grand staircase. It had an elevator, it had libraries, a swimming pool, a gymnasium, an auditorium for an orchestra, and state-of-the-art mechanics and materials, and so much more. And in a time when planes weren't as widely accessible, this would be the most luxurious way to travel across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, some of you can guess what this construction was, mainly because the great Leo and Kate Winslet made it popular back then. It was the Titanic, the ship that was named the Titanic. 
Now, this ship was the culmination of a prosperous age where science and technology and beauty met. And probably the most amazing feature about this ship was that they claimed it to be an unsinkable ship. Now, it was said even of those who created it that God himself could not sink this ship. Ironically, as many of you should hopefully know, that this idol boast would prove catastrophically hollow within a few days after its departure. It sank. When the ship sank in about two and a half hours, it tragically took about 1,500 lives. Now, this ship was not just sunk because it hit an iceberg. That was probably a big factor of it, but not just that. Um, as James Cameron, he's a director who actually um, directed the movie Titanic, he, and he also, during that time, thoroughly researched kind of what happened in this event. And he said this, The ship was also destroyed by a state of mind, an unseen force that would ultimately lead to the era's downfall. Arrogance. Arrogance, or its root cause, pride, is like a cancer that eats and corrupts and corrodes even our best intentions. You know, sadly, even in a more recent world event, we have all seen the horrific news that happened in Turkey and Syria, where an earthquake with the strength of about 130 atomic bombs ripped through Turkey, resulting now, I think the numbers show around 40 to 50,000 dead from this tragic event. Now, there are many aspects of an earthly disaster that we just can't protect ourselves from. It's, just, it's impossible. But there are recent reports that are coming out, too, that mention one of the reasons why this death toll was so high is because the infrastructure in Turkey had not been updated since the 1999 earthquake that took over 20,000 lives. Even though the government, after that earthquake, created new laws, put aside more money, and vowed to ensure new buildings that would be up to code, they were not enforced, and the old buildings were left untouched. And Turkish geologist Dr. Nancy Gruer said this. He said, all sane earth scientists, including me, said that this earthquake came with bells ringing years ago, but no one cared to listen to what we had to say. No one cared to listen. Whether it was the Titanic's unsinkability or the coming earthquake of Turkey, arrogance ignored the warning. And in our text for today, Paul gives us a warning that if we are not careful for us, for those who are Christians in this room, it is possible for our faith to sink as well. Not because of God and what he has done, but because of our own arrogance that could result in our faith crumbling before our eyes. But Paul and I, and I hope all of you, don't want, us, don't want to see that happen. We don't want our faith to crumble. We don't want to slip. We don't want arrogance to slip into our hearts. We want to endure and to walk faithfully with God till he calls us home. We've been asking this question throughout the series of 1 Corinthians as at Park Hyde Park, this question, how does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? And in these 13 verses, what we see, and I believe Paul gives three ways for us as a church to follow Jesus and to endure till the end. And full disclaimer, I'm borrowing these kind of these next three like points or ways that I'll mention, and I'll kind of go through them one by one. I'm borrowing these from another pastor here, um, but I believe these three ways show us how to endure as Christ followers. So let me begin. The first way, 
The first way we endure is we must know God's story. We must know God's story. If you look at verses 1 through 4 again, you see that Paul is referring back to the fathers or the ancestors of the faith tradition. And so Paul goes back to the story of Israel, of their exodus and wilderness experience, which if you go back to the book of Exodus and Numbers, you'll see these stories there. Now, this story goes back to when God's people are under an oppressive ruler in Pharaoh in Egypt for over 400 years. They cried out to God to save them, to free them, so then God then would eventually come after 400 years, and he would rescue them, not by their strength or by their effort, but by sending 10 plagues against Egypt, by, by ending the, the death, uh, or basically this ending the lives of all the firstborn sons, but Israel would be saved at that 10th plague because they would spread the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts, thus resulting in Pharaoh releasing them and to let them go. But then Pharaoh changed his mind, and even in that point, when he pursued Israel with his entire army and chariots, God would split open the Red Sea and allow Israel to walk on dry land and then cover the sea on the chariots of the Egyptian soldiers that were chasing them. And then from that point, we read in Exodus 14, 31, and see behind me, Israel, they, they, they committed to this. They said, they saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. They saw, they feared, and they believed. And then God wasn't done yet. Now they were in the wilderness, which is not a great place to live or be in, by the way, but they were there, and, and God's presence was with them. He was with them through a pillar of fire by night and a cloud in the day, protecting them, guiding them. And in the desert, too, he would provide them food and water. In Exodus 16, God provided this thing called manna, which is like this sweet, honey-like wafer, but it's basically bread from heaven. And when they got thirsty, God miraculously gave water to them out of a rock. I don't think we can do that nowadays, but God did that. He gave them water out of a rock so they could, be, um, they could drink water and survive in the wilderness. So in this entire story, God saved Israel from bondage to a new lifestyle and reality as God's covenant people. But then for us, if you're reading this in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, I mean 10, 1 through 4, it's like, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with the Corinthian church who is reading this letter from Paul? It's because of this. This story of Israel, of God saving Israel, is also our story too. If you notice here, Paul uses this redemptive language to talk about the Egyptian, about the Israel story here. And you see this kind of table that I put behind me here. And it's, it's really fascinating that just as the Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea, which delivered them from oppression, we too, when we make Christ our Lord and Savior, are baptized, displaying that we are transformed people who trust and put our faith in Christ. Just as the cloud was present with the Israelites, God's presence remains with us now, through the Holy Spirit. Just as they were provided spiritual food and spiritual drink, manna and water, we are also given spiritual food and spiritual drink through the blood that was poured out for us and the body that was broken for us in Jesus Christ in which we practice communion. And we see it even more clearly at the end of verse 4 when Paul calls the rock in which the Israelites got the water for as Christ himself. And we too, because of Jesus' life, 
death, and resurrection, we are rescued from sin and death in our lives because Christ is our cornerstone. They are just like us. And we are all part of God's story in how he gives his grace to his people. But just like the Israelites, we're not in the promised land yet. We aren't home. We are in between these two realities where Christ has come and saved us and is with us, but we are not in the new heavens and new earth yet. In other words, we're still in the wilderness. We're still trying to live and endure the realities of sin and brokenness and suffering and death and the evil one, while also knowing that our salvation is secure in Christ. So in order to know how to live in the wilderness, we need to know where we are in God's greater story. You know, so often I feel like for a lot of us, and even in our culture and day and age, we like to try to be the author of our own lives. We like to write our own story and try to get our greatest dreams or do what we think is right for me or good for me. Or we try to adopt someone else's story. We try to live these stories of success, our achievement, our wealth, or these stories of fame, on romance, or happiness and comfort. And these are not like wrong to, to aim for, but if these are the existence of our stories, We'll know that whenever hardship comes or difficulty comes or you lose your job or families fight or romance dwindles, we get angry because the story is not turning out the way that we would like. We get angry at God. We get frustrated. And I think it's because we're looking more through a microscope rather than looking through a telescope. We're, we're trying to make something so small, so big in our lives, when we should be looking at something so grand and see how we fit in that story. In church, it starts right here. It starts in knowing scripture. It starts with knowing God and reading it and meditating on it and seeing how our lives are placed in God's story. Because even in the stories like Esther in, in the Old Testament, our King David, or the prophecies, or the Psalms, or even the confusing imageries of Revelation, these parts of Scripture, the entire Word of God, is relevant to God's story, and then it allows us to know where we fit in. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about your individual stories. But it means that in order for you to live out your story and find your place, you need to know God's story. And that's why in verse 6, if you look with me, it says that these things happened. They took place as examples for us. In scripture, you'll see an example of what it looks to live in line with God's ways and also how not to live in God's ways or live in God's story or live against the ways that God has planned for us. And in the story that Paul shares here, he shares stories of warning, which leads me to my second way to endure as a Christ follower. Number two is we must heed God's warning. Paul says in verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Or another translation says, for their bodies laid low in the wilderness. Many Israelites died before making it to the promised land. Why? Because we see at the end of verse 6, even amidst all that God had done for them, they turned away and desired evil things. Literally, the translation says they craved and lusted after evil things. 
And from verse 7 to 10, we see Paul give four examples or four sins the Israelites were punished for. And it also serves as a warning for us. And so I'm going to go through them one by one because uh, it, it has a lot of relevancy towards us. But again, I, I can't do justice to the entire stories that he's talking about. But let me just kind of make sure we know what Paul is talking about here. The first warning we see is... Do not rely on your idols. Here in verse 7, Paul says, Do not be idolatrous as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You know, here Paul is quoting Exodus 32, verse 6. And this is when the people of Israel had just received the law of God, and they saw God literally writing the law of God in the tablet that he gave to them on Mount Sinai. And the people here, they vowed to the Lord that they will give their lives to the Lord and follow his ways. And then a few days later, they get bored. And so it's instead of remembering their commitment to God, we see them asking Aaron to make them an idol, a golden calf in which they would offer sacrifices to. And then when we see this, verse 6, it says the, the word rose to play. It's not like how kids play in a playground, okay? It's the kind of play where you are having in this erotic party before a temple idol. That's really what the word is talking about. When there was plenty of drinking and dancing and acts that would make us all uncomfortable. Or the NIV says to indulge in uh, revelry. So what happened here? Why did they do this? The Israelites were, maybe they were bored, but I honestly think they desired to have the same parties like the Egyptians did when they were living in Egypt and when they were worshiping their gods there. So then God became angry with them because their commitment to follow God also mentioned that if they did not follow God, God would accordingly punish them. And so his anger arises, and 3,000 are killed on that day because of their idolatry. An idol here, folks, is, as Tim Keller says, and he, this quote is used quite often in sermons, but it's the best definition of an idol. It's when anything absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is like a pseudo-savior that you look to find your pleasure, your fulfillment, your satisfaction in. And yet, I know for us, our idols are not statues, our erotic parties, I believe. But for a lot of us, they are when good things become ultimate things. Like our families, our jobs, our health, our resources, our achievements, and so much more. And I'll speak on this more next week on the topic of idolatry. Um, but here are some good questions that help you figure out what are your idols. And the questions are up here. What does my mind wander to in my free time? What activity do I crave when I'm busy? What do I run to for comfort? What do I get angry with God about? We all have them. The second warning we see here uh, in verse 8, do not look to sex to satisfy. In verse 8, Paul writes, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This story is going back to Numbers 25, verses 1 to 2, it reads, it's behind me, it says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The Israelites were commanded not to marry outside of their people, not because God didn't like those people, but because he knew if that they did, they would begin to leave God and follow after other gods. 
But the Israelites couldn't control their appetites and whored after them. It's incredibly strong language after other women. So much so that God sent a plague and took 23,000 lives on that day. And it's interesting, if you look throughout really all of Scripture, sexual immorality is often closely linked with idolatry. If you can't be faithful to one spouse, how can you be faithful to one God? That's kind of the relationship there. And sex in scripture, it's deeply interlinked with spirituality. Sex is not just a physical act. And, and we talked a lot about this in the previous chapters of 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so you can refer to those sermons for more details, dives on those. But in short, in scripture, we see that sex is a gift given in a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman, but because sin warps us and warps good things to idols, our culture has become obsessed with sex because we long for that intimacy, that love, that care, that satisfaction that only God can provide. Yet no matter how much you try to find sexual satisfaction in the world or in others or in partners that you have, it will never give you the satisfaction that God can give. And so Paul warns them, do not look to sex to satisfy. The third warning we see in verse 9 is do not test God or bargain with God. In verse 9 it says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now this story is in Numbers 21, when the Israelites were testing God. So in this story, the people of God they were getting sick of manna and the water that was lacking for their journey. So they sneered to God. They were like, why, why did you bring us to this wilderness, God? Why is there no food or water? Why are you making us listen to all your laws and walk in the wilderness when you're making our lives so difficult? Aren't you supposed to give us a land flowing with milk and honey? Where is it? And God gets so angry at their ungrateful hearts that he sends serpents on them to kill many of them. I mean, imagine here. Imagine if your friend or your spouse or a family member that you love begins to demand you give them things in return for their service to you. Imagine they said, hey, I cooked for you. You must clean the dishes. Or, hey, I gave you a ride to O'Hare, which is so far away. The least you could do is buy me dinner. Or, hey, I helped you get some you know, money for you when times were rough. The least you could do is give me a gift on Christmas. And we begin to, to kind of like bargain with our relationships with others. And the Israelites were doing the same thing with God. The opposite of testing God is trusting God. But our temptation, and you know, I would say a lot of us struggle with this, that our temptation is to often treat God like our subscriptions, like our Amazon Prime account, where we're clicking and ordering, and we expect God to give it to us in two days or less. God, I do this. You're supposed to give me that. But God doesn't owe us anything. That's never anything that we see in Scripture. He does these things for us because He loves us, because He wants to provide for us, because He sent His only Son to die for our sins because of His grace and mercy and love for His children. So we aren't meant to bargain with God or test God. We are meant to plead and petition to our Heavenly Father and trust that God in His timing can give us what we need and when we need it because He loves us.
The fourth warning that we see in verse 10 is do not grumble about God's gifts. Verse 10 says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now this, there's not really a particular story here because the Israelites, they grumbled a lot. Uh, And in Numbers 11, here's one example. It says, And the people complained or grumbled in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Probably the most repeated sin, actually, in Israel's wilderness experience was a complaining heart. Are they grumbling? It's like this, this word means when you're like complaining under your breath, but you, you're not trying to hide it. You really want the other person to hear it, and you're like complaining. And so the Israelites, after being saved and redeemed, and they said they're going to give God their lives and, and follow him, like a week later, they're doing this. They're like, man, why are we in the wilderness again? I, I don't like this manna. Like, doesn't it taste worse today? Can we get something else? I'm so sick of walking and walking and walking. I mean, isn't, wasn't Egypt better than this? I mean, yeah, we were slaves, but man, wasn't it better than this? And, and they would grumble over and over again about their circumstances. And what's crazy to think about is that they would also then get to the point where they would say that Egypt, that slavery, that a pharaoh that would kill their own people was better than being with God in the wilderness. And after much complaining and grumbling, God would punish them. And if we're honest here, I think um, we're not that different. Uh, We can get so excited about our lives or about our faith and about what God has done in the church or our relationships with God, our relationship with God. But then after a little while, our things get a little tough, like, you know, the, uh, you know, we, we, like our faith gets a little bit, you know, we're going through a difficult time. We start nitpicking at things. We start complaining and grumbling. We're like, oh, do I have to go to church again? Oh, I'm sick of reading the Bible. It's so boring. I'm reading like Leviticus or First Chronicles. Why is it so boring? Oh, do I have to go to Bible study again? Like, why are there so many things I can't do as a Christian? Why can't I do the things that my coworkers or friends are doing? Did God really say I have to tithe? Like 10%? Is that really a number that God wants me to give? Like, why can't God understand my life is so busy? Why can't God understand my needs, my wants? And with the same mouth, that we use to sing praises to God, we grumble about our lives before God. Why? I think one of the biggest reasons in our culture, in our day and age, and even for myself, is that we we feel entitled. Uh, We feel entitled to the gifts that God has given to us. We feel like we're entitled to some sort of comfort or fun or, 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 you know, prosperity or whatever we want to do or feel like we're we're entitled to have what we believe God should be giving to us. Sometimes so much so that we are almost like we feel also entitled that we deserve the best church experience or the best spiritual life or expect every sermon to like be amazing or every song to be a life trans like transformational and have the best fellowship and the best community. And then when we don't get what we think we deserve, we begin to grumble and grumble and grumble. But the posture from the God who saved us and healed us and gave us new life should not be grumbling. It should be one of immense gratitude. That times will be tough, yes, that our Christian life is not a straight line to the right, 
to the right, to the right. Um, but it's a life where we remember that God is gracious to us and that his gifts are good. Now, I ran through these quite quickly. Uh, I confess that they, each one of these stories could be a sermon on its own. But I went through each of these examples quickly because I want us to remember that in verse 11, Paul says this, that these things happened to them as an example, but they were also written down for our instruction. Paul says in verse 12, and this is kind of the overarching warning of these four warnings here. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Remember, do you not think for a moment that this can never happen to you? The Israelites who've seen God's incredible acts. I mean, they literally saw an ocean split into two. They saw manna coming from the sky. They saw quail falling down so they can eat it. They saw water coming out of a rock. And yet still, they fell into this sin. Same way, like the captain of the Titanic or the Turkish government, who had warning after warning, decided not to listen, and it ended up in a catastrophe. It can happen to us too. We are not exempt. As the famous hymn says, we are prone to wander and leave the God we love. We are prone towards arrogance, not taking sin too seriously, becoming unaware that sin is crouching at the door ready to consume us. We are prone towards laziness and boredom, indulging in sins that we would not normally do if we were intentionally pursuing Christ. We are prone to covering our sin or doing it in secret, not thinking the consequences are real because, hey, it's not hurting anyone. And we're also prone to be entitled, selfish, vengeful, and so much more where we fall away from God's law and pursue our own idols and desires. The story of the Israelites is our story too. Thus, we must take heed God's warning in Scripture. So then how? How are we to do this? Let me just tell you a, a quick story. Um, I often love telling stories about my boys because I just feel like, yeah, our stories are actually very much what they really do innocently. One day, um, my boys are actually like just overall too, like my boys are getting to the age where they are having an opinion for themselves, which is uh, not the best thing, but uh, you know, they start talking back to me and saying, I don't want to do this, or I don't want to do that. Uh, God, please help uh, me and my wife and all of our parents who and kids do that. Uh, but there was an instance when Josiah, he's almost three, uh, he wanted a juice box, right? The juice box, kids love juice boxes. And uh, he grabbed one, and then I'm like, I grabbed one, I gave it to him, and I'm like, wait, 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 let me open the, the straw and like put it in the, in, the, in the hole there. And he grabs from me, he's like, no, like, I, I want to do it. Like, me, me, me do it, me do it. And so he gra I gave it to him, and I'm like, I don't think you can do that. And so I, I try to like get it back, but he's not wanting it. And so I'm like, okay, you just, you just try it, okay? And so if you guys know these juice boxes, they are very difficult to open and get the straw into the hole. You have to unwrap the wrapping for the straw, and the straw has like a little pointy end, and you have to get that pointy end into the silver, like aluminum, like thing, and if you don't get it right on there, you won't get that juice. And so I'm like, this is impossible for this kid. 
So what, he, what does he do? He, he barely gets the wrapping open, okay? And like, okay, great. And then he tries to get the straw into the hole. And as he's doing it himself, he is like jamming the, jamming the straw in like a hammer. He's like, he's like doing this to try to get the, get the straw into the juice box. And I'm warning him, like, if you keep doing that, it's, you're not going to get that juice. But he doesn't listen. He just keeps going after it and trying to get that straw into the juice box, getting frustrated and frustrated in the process. And at the end, there's no pointy edge anymore in that straw. Um, if anything, the straw is not really a straw anymore because it's like pretty much like a lump of plastic that he made in before he could get the straw into that juice box. And after that entire experience, I have to take the juice box. I, I can't even get the straw in there. Cut it up and put it into a cup. And at that point, he didn't really want the juice. <laughs> um, and what's funny about this story is that I feel like for a lot of us, we're not that far from what he, my son, was doing. I find that in our stories, a lot of us are trying to fix our lives the way that we want it, hammering and exerting our will to get what we really want. It's probably not juice, like honest juice, but it's probably something deeper that we're craving. Or perhaps some of us, we're trying to heed God's warning. We're, Christ we're Christians, we're trying to live out God's law, and we're trying day after day, month after month, trying to live according to God's ways. But we just can't get it right. We fail. We can't get that straw into that box, and we're unable to get what we desperately want. We end up not trusting God, and we fail. And the bad news is that we can't it on our own. We can't heed God's warning on our own. We can't live up to the story that we want in our lives. We will fail. Even if you try with every single fiber in your being, the story of many stories in our world is that you cannot get the story or the ending that you want in your lives. You'll never get a happy ending on your own. We can't do it on our own. Which leads me to my third and final way that we are to endure as Christ followers. It's this, it's simple, but so difficult. We must trust God's faithfulness. We must trust God's faithfulness. Here is the good news. There is good news here. In verse 13, let me just read it again. It's really a, an amazing verse that like, you probably memorized too. But it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No temptation in this world that you will ever face will be too much for you. You will be able to escape it. You will be able to endure it. Why? It's because God is faithful. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, he says this, Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Now hear this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Church, the story that we're all in is that we've all been faithless. We all have turned our way from God and we've pursued our idols. We've looked to sex to satisfy. We've tested and bargained with God. We even have grumbled with God, maybe even just this past week. Yet in every single one of those failures, 
God has never been faithless towards you. He has always been faithful from the beginning of time, over and over again. This story that we see here is a story of God pursuing his people, forgiving them, warning them, yet punishing them so that they can return back to him. And in the climax of this story, God's faithfulness would be the most evident in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who became like us, who took on our sins, and who took on the punishment that we deserve on the cross and freed us from our sin through his resurrection, so that we would no longer have to do it on our own. But we would have to give God the straw. We would have to give God control. We would have to let him lead our lives into an eternal life that is transformed through his grace and through his love. The good news is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, there is no temptation on earth that will crush you and destroy you. That because of God's faithfulness, not your faithfulness, he will preserve you and heal you and transform you. And you will be able to endure till the end. And as Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 reminds us, and I feel like it has such good connection to this passage. It reads, for we do not have a high priest, high priest being Jesus, who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. No matter where you are at, we are called to approach God's throne of grace with confidence because our God knows exactly what we're facing, what temptations, what lies we face every single day. And he is saying, I have been faithful through it all, Come to me. His promises is to help you in your time of need. Don't let your arrogance or your pride take away your desperate need for God. Our God has been faithful in every season. Um, I promise God will help you. It's probably, even as a pastor, one of the things that I believe the strongest, just even in my own story as well, is that God is faithful. God is always faithful. You know, I could go longer here, but I want to begin to wrap up. Let me quickly pray, and I'm going to transition our time into communion as a way to apply this message in our lives. Father, we come before you. Um, We know that your word is sufficient and good. And we ask, God, that you would please be with us as we look to heed your warning, to know your story, Um, and to trust in your faithfulness. And so, God, I do ask that you would um, now be with us as we apply your word in the act of communion, uh, remembering and taking of the body and the blood of Christ. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you can turn here with me to the communion table. Um, Church, what's amazing about communion is that at the table of communion, We are reminded of the cost of salvation. We are reminded that God's faithfulness was not cheap, but cost his only son down on his life for sinful people like us. We're reminded that his grace and his mercy are bountiful. We're reminded that the table unifies all people, not just here in this room, but all people throughout generations and across the world. 
And we are reminded that we come to this table not on our own accord, but through Jesus' work for us. That at this table, God welcomes the weak, the broken, the sinner, the one who says, I can't do it myself. I can't save myself. I can't live up to the story I want to live. I can't be holy as you want me to be. I need your help. This table is for you. That Jesus' body is broken and his blood poured out for you. So before I prepare the elements, um, you know, I think there are two groups of people probably in this space. Um, There are some of you who might have a, a sin in your life that you need to hear the warning that Paul has that you need to repent, that you need to accept God's sufficient grace. Maybe it's an idol, maybe it's a grumbling heart. And I encourage you, before you take the elements, to spend a moment in confession of sin. Um, Then there are others, the other half of you, maybe those that are living in guilt and shame right now, that you're living in some sort of frustration or suffering or hardship. And, And what you need is to trust that this table, that God's provision is enough, that he is faithful, that you can be assured that Jesus' blood can cleanse every past sin, every present sin, and every future sin, and that his faithfulness knows no bounds. I encourage you to come and receive the elements in light of the assurance that Christ has given to you. So today we'll be using actual bread and juice. Um, we will. We also have some of the to-go packets if you are uncomfortable with sharing in the meal together. But let me prepare the elements by reading uh, 1 Corinthians, actually. It reads, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is, oh my goodness, Christ's bread is very strong. Uh, broke it, this is my body. That's really messy. Um, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so um, I'm going to invite you, whenever you're ready, to come up the middle aisle um, to receive the elements, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out and shed for you, Um, But if you need moments to pray, pray. Uh, And after everyone is finished, then we will um, sing a few songs and close in our time of worship. And so let me pray. And then after I say amen, you can come to the table whenever you are ready. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for um, your table. Uh, God, sometimes we take this table too lightly. God, we we sometimes feel that this table... um, Yeah, it's just kind of going through the motions. But God, I do pray that as your people, we would come to this table truly broken and in need, knowing that you provide your body, your blood to cleanse us, to forgive us, but to also to welcome us into a new family to be your own. And so, Father, be with us. I don't know all the struggles and the hardships and the shame and the questions that we're going through right now. But I do know that you know all of them, that you identify yourselves with them. And so, Father, I pray even in this practice of communion that you would nourish us now as our rock, as our Savior, um, as the one who has come to forgive us of our sins. It's in your precious, holy, amazing, and powerful name.